Hello and welcome to the Editor's Podcast for the December 2022 edition of Practical Neurology. It's actually the Christmas edition and we're the two co-editors of the journal, Phil Smith and Garak Fuller, and uh, it's, it's a pleasure to review this edition of the journal, what many readers call their guilty pleasure. So it's uh, it's one of those journals still we're publishing in hard copy, Garant, and uh, I did notice at a recent meeting that a couple of delegates had a hard copy in their in their bag. Do you, do you mean what, what's your thought about still having a hard copy as opposed to just an electronic version of this? Oh, I think it changes one's relationship with the journal altogether. I mean, the, the you know the physical journal you can open, you can turn it, you can leaf through it, you can come across things accidentally that you wouldn't otherwise be looking for. So I, I think it's um, it's definitely a different relationship uh, to flick through. And I, I know we keep returning to the bath where Charles felt we should be reading it, but. Uh, it's very nice, and it's really nice to see people carrying it about, and even better. I did actually see someone reading it on the train, and I can't tell you how my spirits lifted. Reading is so much better than carrying it alone, absolutely. So we've got a, uh, a full issue, and we've got a couple of brilliant uh, editorials, actually. The first of which is In Defence of General Neurology by Neil Anderson from Auckland. And uh, Geraint, you're a general neurologist, and you've had first look at this paper. Yeah, I think this is a really uh, important topic because I think, uh, and Neil makes this point, that general neurology is um, slightly undervalued. There's no doubt that most patients will encounter a neurologist first in an undifferentiated setting. So they will always be depending on the general neurological skills of the person involved, whether it's an outpatient, uh, in, in the the emergency room on the ward as a referral. And um, Neil really explores the fact that we do undervalue it, and yet it is perhaps an extraordinarily interesting and positive experience for the neurologist as well as trainees. And he also makes this, the good point that if you see a specialist, they'll tend to be drawn to their specialism. You know, so if you've got somebody who is interested in a bit of everything, then actually there's a decent chance that they'll get someone in the right avenue and, and make progress with the diagnosis and treatment um, without having been drawn in. I mean, you, you'll recall we had a, a very nice paper looking through the wrong end of the telescope from the movement disorder uh, uh, team, and he quotes this reference. And, and basically, because they were a group of movement disorders doctors, they were misled with neuromuscular presentations that turned up in the wrong clinic. And it gives a very good illustration of, of why it pays dividends to see someone with an open mind. And actually, it makes the clinic much more dynamic and interesting for all concerned. Yeah, because he makes the point that actually, from the patient's perspective, someone with new neurological symptoms are actually best seen by a general neurologist. But once you have a specific condition, then you're better off as a patient seeing the specialist. So, so we need both, but we specifically need general neurologists at the front door. And because we all do a bit of front door work, we all need to be a bit of a general neurologist. It, it got me thinking, actually, what is general neurology? And uh, I know that David Stevens, who worked in Gloucester a few years ago in 1989, a classical paper, what the workload of an English neurologist is, and it was 20% headache, 20% blackouts and epilepsy, no, 15% peripheral nerve and a bit of uh, uh, movement disorder, multiple sclerosis and everything. But the things that were not there 
were things like dementia. And the only strokes that he was seeing was rare sort of brainstem strokes. And he was not seeing falls in the elderly or minimal cognitive impairment, all of those things that are neurology. I mean, neurology is evolving, but it's just of interest that that uh, something like headache is there, but um, something like falls and dementia and forgetting things, this sort of thing, is is not there amongst general neurology. Well, though, though I think in a way... Um Neurology is defined almost by who gets referred to neurologists, and general neurologists is, is defined by the people who get referred by other specialties. And the, the, the kind of conditions you've just mentioned, broadly speaking, um, we're seeing more of those things simply by virtue of the fact that there are so many more neurologists around. And I, and I think part of the theme of this edition is actually what do people need to know? And in a way... Part of our role is to try and identify what people need to know and to provide them with the information that will be useful when they see those patients who, who haven't necessarily got something that they're expecting to have. You know, if you if you run an MS clinic, you gen up on MS in advance. But if you're doing a general neurology, you just have to read practical neurology. Absolutely. So our other editorial is Jonathan Schott from London talking about how preventable is dementia. And, and really, you know... We just mentioned is dementia part, part of what general neurologists do? Well, it, it has to be because this is the commonest serious neurological condition, certainly in those over the age of 85, when one in three of us, if we reach 85, will develop a form of dementia. So we all need to know about it. This This paper is based on what is preventable? What can we do in our own lives to try to prevent this almost inevitability of uh, losing cognitive function and eventually maybe dementing in some cases. And it's based on the Lancet Commission of Dementia, first published in 2017 and revised in 2020. And they came up with 12 potentially modifiable factors. And it's it's interesting to read these, you know, low education, later on in life, obesity, alcohol, brain injury, hearing loss, hearing loss, of course, hearing loss, really important, hypertension, and later smoking, depression, social isolation, physical inactivity, diabetes, and air pollution. So I think that, that what Jonathan makes the point that perhaps 40% of uh, the dementia risk is modifiable and things that we can do something about. But unfortunately, there still is a significant genetic risk. Uh, so a lot of this is about individual decision making, what we can do. A lot of it is about government action, I mean, education, air pollution, etc. And uh, if there is any disappointment, it's that uh, doing the Sudoku is not necessarily going to defend us against dementia. Uh, it says do Sudoku if you enjoy Sudoku, but if you enjoy something else, then do that instead. I mean, I, I like this very much indeed, because this is so close to all of us. It's really highly, highly relevant to everyone's lifestyle choices. But uh, it's something we should all know about just as human beings, let alone neurologists. And I think that's actually um, one of those situations where you think to yourself, is this going beyond general neurology into everyday conversation into public health? And uh, this is the, the kind of thing which even if you're not seeing people with dementia, people worry about it, they'll often ask about it. Knowing what the evidence is and, and what things people can do is going to be very helpful, not just for 
uh, your patients, but actually for, for friends, particularly as they get older, they're keen to know uh, this kind of gen. And I think it's actually written in a, a very accessible way. So if people are really keen and really want to know about it, then this would be a very useful starting point. To yeah, he, he writes beautifully and I think ma- makes many, many points in what is a very brief editorial, but uh, it, it's worth reading and rereading, I think, to, to uh, understand all the subtleties there. So absolutely great uh, start to the journal. So then we have our editor's choice. Our editor's choice this yes. time is radiation and the nervous system. It's uh, Jeremy Reese and uh, Michael Cosman. Garrett, you've been having a look at our editor's choice. So, so obviously the editor's choice is the subject of a dedicated um, podcast that Amy Ross Russell does and will be speaking to the authors. Clearly, I would thoroughly recommend you to, to listen to that. However, I think this is a really nice... Um, summary of really quite a complicated thing. So first of all, they start off by taking you through what radiation is, and, and clearly it's evolved enormously. People will be familiar with sort of whole brain irradiation or the relatively crude um, irradiation techniques that have been used in the past. But there's improved conformational techniques. A gamma knife, which I hadn't realised was a single treatment as opposed to uh, regular treatments of a slightly higher dose uh, to a small target. And the, the difference between photon beam and proton beam, uh, proton beam being slightly more accurate, so something that you'd perhaps be using in children. So the, the background type of radiation treatments that are available is changing, which is obviously helpful. They then um, do what I think is very valuable for our general neurologists, is that they talk about the principles behind the type of pathological processes that you get. So that the idea that you get, obviously, a wave of acute uh, damage, um, and then you can have an inflammatory response, and then you get later um, sort of slower apoptotic type of changes in different areas. And, and broadly speaking, by giving you the anatomical and uh, pathophysiological substrate, when you then move on to the different syndromes that you can see, actually it all rather makes sense. So uh, if you look at complications of radiation, you have an acute radiation syndrome, an acute encephalopathy, which is within a few weeks, where you can get really quite dramatic, uh, often fairly large scale reactions to radiation. You then broadly speaking, follow a time scale to sort of early delayed radiation encephalopathy, which can be between two and six months, where you can get a similar uh, type of problem. And again, this tends to be uh, um, uh, if you're irradiating the brain. You can get what they refer to as pseudo-progression, which is where you get someone seemingly deteriorating, and they provide uh, some advice as to how to distinguish pseudo-progression from true progression. There's some unusual MR sequences that you can use to help distinguish between those different things. And then uh, later on, you can get uh, radionecrosis that we'll we're all familiar with as being the very late complication, which can go on for a very long time. And then beyond that, you've got a a whole brain effect, late um, delayed uh, radiation encephalopathy, which is where the whole brain can be affected. And uh, then a few other syndromes that are worth being aware of. You can get a sort of normal pressure hydrocephalus type syndrome. You can develop um, secondary tumors because of the radiation, either um, benign tumors, uh, such as meningiomas, and they've got a nice illustration of that, uh, or, or alternatively, gliomas within the field of radiation. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big paper, isn't it? I mean, it, it co- co- covers it's a, a lot. Paper. I mean, the, the indications, a way of delivery, the, the complications, short and long-term, central and peripheral nervous system. I mean, this, this is a, a treatment we'll all be very familiar with. It's an old treatment, and we are seeing the effects of it sometimes many years later. But, of course, now 
what uh, Jeremy is pointing out is that uh, the the greater the better targeting and the fractionating of the, the the dose is preventing many of these problems because of course when a small dose is given there's time between for a bit of repair and the greater repair happens in normal tissues rather than the tumor tissue so it's possible and optimal really to to fractionate the dose and and minimize these side effects but equally, because it's an effective treatment, patients are surviving. And um, I not long ago saw uh, a young woman who'd had radiation treatment sort of 25, 30 years ago, and she was suffering from another set of the complications, the vasculopathy, the accelerated atheroma that you can get, so that they can often develop sort of, sort of atypical stroke syndromes relating to, to those And of changes. course, yeah, well, you're probably going to mention it because there was this, this promising treatment with radionecrosis. I mean, uh, we, we hear a bit about, uh, you know, we, we would normally use steroids, etc. But uh, um, beaver cizumab, beaver cizumab, a systematic review showing that that is helpful really for managing radionecrosis, as might happen, for example, after irradiating uh, an AVM or a metastasis or so forth. So I think that there is some grounds for optimism, really, even with something that uh, is the late effect of a previous treatment that you might previously have thought was not going to be very amenable to treatment. It is one of those fields where the first treatment for almost all the conditions does seem to be steroids. And clearly that's not always going to be the answer, but it seems to be that the immediate response, particularly for the earlier phases. I mean, it goes on with lots of detail, some syndromes, a smart syndrome that we've seen. And I won't go into in detail because clearly this is something Amy will be discussing. But I think it's worthwhile being aware because you've got the the, the, the idea of you've got the pathophysiology, you've got the location, and you've got the, the tying that to the, the time course and the various syndromes that can develop. And you know, every patient is going to be slightly different because where they're irradiated is going to be different and the consequences are, are worth being aware of. So a very, very nice paper that I think hopefully will be read in hard copy and then perhaps accessed again electronically. So we then move on to the next uh, paper, which is to really explore something which actually is, is quite a common issue, which is optimising rehabilitation after a stroke. Phil, I think you're yeah, looking at this. Yeah, so th- this is from, uh, well, it's, it's from London, from Southampton, from Leeds. It is actually quite a UK-focused paper, but uh, it, it covers some really important principles about uh, the rehabilitation and recovery after a stroke. I mean, this is such an important area, but um, I think several times in the paper, it's emphasised really that the trials on it, the the research evidence is perhaps not as strong for uh, this aspect of stroke as it is, of course, in the acute aspects of stroke, which is now very well supported. The focus, as expected, really is on MDTs, And the focus is on early intervention where possible. The earlier that it's started, then the better the outcome is likely to be. So there is a very helpful table, box one, which talks about complications very early on in stroke because the rehabilitation process should start as soon as a patient comes into hospital. Um, There are three phases, really, the acute phase, then the inpatient phase, which is an average of 19 days, 
and is supported by evidence from NICE. And then the community phase, which is gradually moving to tele-neuro-rehabilitation maybe, a very challenging phase for which uh, uh, there are NICE lifestyle recommendations, but not a lot of uh, hard evidence based on trials. So um, I think the gold standard for the acute management as expected, really, is an experienced MDT starting rehabilitation in an organised stroke unit. If we can get that, then we'll get the very best outcomes. Uh, but from then on, we need to implement the rehabilitation early for patients. And really, the bottom line is that clinicians are essential in the rehabilitation and the recovery process, that we must work as good team members, we must participate, we must help coordinate different team members and be involved in the planning and delivery of services. And, and actually, this paper does chime very well with another we'll come to later on about spinal stroke, where rehabilitation is also going to be covered. So um, I find this a helpful paper because there isn't a great deal in the neurology literature sometimes about uh, exactly what we should be doing to help rehabilitate patients with stroke. I think it's, it's uh, something that is clearly an evolving process and uh, at the moment, as I say, based on UK practice mainly. I, I think it's worth reflecting that the standard of evidence on which the other parts of stroke management are based is so high compared to the rest of neurological management that I think it's, it, the contrast is uh, marked between what's available about acute stroke management and rehabilitation. But actually, if you look across rehabilitation in stroke as opposed to rehabilitation in other areas of neurology, I think actually stroke is still ahead of other parts of uh, uh, other disease disorders. So, for example, the role of rehabilitation in multiple sclerosis and so on is a less extensively covered area. And it tends to be... A lot of people think of stroke uh, of rehabilitation perhaps as an add-on, and uh, the emphasis here is making this an integral part of the management. Thinking about it early and uh, very early, in fact, and um, thinking about how best to deliver this care that's going to improve the, the the long-term outcome of someone with a very very common disorder. So the next one we're going to discuss is uh, in the peripheral nervous system. So. This is a paper from Mike Lunn and colleagues from uh, Queen Square, but also uh, colleagues from Manchester in the UK. It's the Pragmatic Guide to Peripheral Nerve Disease and the Role of Clinical Biomarkers. So, um, Garrett, you've been having a, a close look at this paper. So this is a very interesting paper, and actually partly because they take a slightly different perspective on the way in which we approach writing articles about different things. So, so they've not taken a specific disease, they've not taken a specific process, but they've taken some of the things that are done in the management or in the diagnosis management of patients with peripheral nerve disease and try to actually weigh up their role and what they can do. And biomarkers is a slightly tricky term for that, but I, I think it obviously is, I think it's the best term. We had some discussion as to what would be the best way to try and characterize that. Because they look at a number of markers, a number of things which are involved both in diagnosis, but also then subsequently in, in management. And they, they talk about the, the fact that, you know, these are factors that weigh into the diagnosis and, and the Bayesian, how, how these different pieces of information change the Bayesian probabilities. And they highlight some of the catches that you can get in relation to that. 
So they, they talk a little bit about elements of the neurophysiology uh, and how useful it can be uh, as a predictor, um, and clearly the different types of Guillain-Barré syndrome, for example, and how useful is that, but also what are the, the pitfalls? And they, they say that clearly you can sometimes find a neurophysiology that looks electrophysiological, but actually uh, looks axonal, but actually reflects a demyelinating process. So you have a situation where uh, sometimes repeating the neurophysiology can be extremely helpful. And, and they uh, explore how you can combine neurophysiology with uh, clinical scores to try and be prognostic. And uh, broadly speaking, they try and provide help in interpreting these things, actually for the general neurologist, uh, from their position, obviously, as experts. They discuss um, CSF and, and blood biomarkers. I mean, I think there's a very nice table, table one, which discusses the different kinds of antibodies that you're going to find and uh, the clinical syndromes that they're tied to. And they make the point that actually in the right clinical context, these things are extremely helpful. But actually, they're not as specific as all that. So you know, there are some antibodies which actually will mislead you. So you, you need to be thinking not just about the blood test and the blood test result, but also the clinical yeah. context in which you get that result. Yeah, you're right. We, we did have a chat about whether the word sort of clinical biomarkers might almost put a reader off uh, thinking, you know, somebody who's interested in peripheral nerve, you think about clinical biomarkers, is, is that the right term to, to draw the reader in? And uh, because it turns out it's really about, uh, it's about blood tests, you say it's about ner nerve conduction studies, it's about uh, CSF, it's about imaging of, of these things. And, and it's a really, uh, very very full paper and what what I really liked actually was the discussion at the beginning as you've mentioned about the sort of Bayesian probability the 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 way to use any biomarker of any disorder uh, depends on the prior probability of that condition being the, the one that you're looking for and just finding a test with very few exceptions a positive test does not necessarily lead to a diagnosis yeah, I mean, they give it a nice example, you know, VEGF, which is um, obviously very uh, markedly elevated in Poem's syndrome and can be very helpful in making that diagnosis, is raised in a variety of other things. So the notion of getting a false positive for, for that could be very misleading. And, uh, you know, clearly, uh, and they've, they've got quite a number of cases where they've illustrated where it's helpful or unhelpful uh, to have these different measures. Um, uh, and they talk about you know, uh, monoclonal bands, uh, anti-MAG antibodies. They do some discussion about the role of imaging of nerves, again, highlighting the fact that there's some degree of uncertainty. Uh, but there are some situations where it can be incredibly helpful. So it's trying to move people very much to using, you know, the tests are there to help you. These are the tests that you can use to help you. And, and equally, you don't want them to confuse you. And I think they're trying to disentangle that process. Um, and it's clearly built on substantial experience from patients who've been referred to them, who turned out to have problematic and different neuropathies, often with the confusion built on a misinterpretation of some of the investigations that have gone along. So I think it's a really thought-provoking Yeah, that's paper. the point, actually, that, that it is the experienced clinician that uh, is writing this and is uh, using these biomarkers, you know, the best practical way to use them. I mean, there, there are very few that are highly helpful. I'm thinking of GQ1B. I mean, if, if you get that is very specific, really, for peripheral neuropathy with uh, ophthalmoplegia, uh, that's really helpful. But so many others, like the GM1 and even, as you mentioned, VEGF, may not be enough on their own to, to secure diagnoses. So 
I think an important point is that for monitoring, clinical outcome measures are much better than investigation results. And I think that's probably the case across many aspects of neurology, but not least in, in peripheral nerve disease. But I think the other thing that they've done is they've shared the expertise of the specialists so that the generalist will be more comfortable in trying to make um, these diagnostic decisions and use things appropriately. So we, we then come to, uh, um, a, I think, a very interesting paper that's from Emma Husbands and, and Kevin Tolbert, uh, talking about pathological laughter and crying in neurological disorders, recognition and treatment. And I think uh, this contains some, uh, some interesting yes, ideas. So it's a very, very sad condition, isn't it, when people laugh or cry in, inappropriately and uh, excessively, and um, a very distressing condition, not just for the patient, but for the carers as well. It's disabling, and yet it's underdiagnosed. I mean, partly because people and their carers may be embarrassed to report it to their doctors, but partly because it may be just considered unrelated to their condition. Well, I mean, what, who would expect that pathologically crying would, would be part of something awful like motor neuron disease? And yet it's potentially treatable. And the uh, important part of this article is that it explains that the, the newer treatments that might be available for this distressing condition. So it starts by going through the mechanism about the central nervous pathways that disinhibit reflex motor control of emotional expression. It's clearly a, a widely distributed, it's not just something that is from a single focal lesion very often. And uh, they make a nice point, I think, about human beings being probably the only species on the planet that does laugh or cry properly. And it started out as a way of communicating emotion to other people. So it predated language. So it's closely tied in with, with language. But yes, the, uh, the treatment line is really important. And uh, we have this treatment, which is called, uh, the trade name is Neurodexter, and it's a combination of dextromorphan and quinidine. And it's licensed by the FDA. So worldwide, it is being used, but it's not yet licensed in the UK. So Maybe that comes with a slight word of caution, but I think that in terms of having a treatment available for people with this condition, uh, this is really important. Check the uh, ECG before giving it, though, because it can prolong the QT interval. So, yeah, I, I think this is a really important paper because it covers a disorder that uh, is not enough thought about and yet is out there and is commonly under-recognised and therefore under-diagnosed and under-treated. And I think they, they make the point in the article that uh, very often recognition, particularly if people don't have it too too severely, recognition that this is a phenomenon can help the family members and everyone to sort of make sense of the, the situation. But, but it, this can be a really profoundly disabling and distressing syndrome for all concerned. And the combination of uh, dextromethorphan and quinidine, which can be prescribed as a, a non a licensed preparation uh, does seem to have a useful therapy. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right that actually just the, the family, once they hear that that it's validated and uh, uh, no, accepted uh, that what they're saying, you know, that itself can be helpful. And uh, so, so, so often it's just something that's kept back otherwise. 
The, the other thing that's within this article actually is a little bit of neuromythology. We we did at one time ask Kevin Talbot, who wrote this, to to ask about pseudobulbar palsy because I know he dislikes the term, not least because it is anatomically nonsense. That uh, the person who described it, uh, Lapine, in 1877, used it to explain how he had misattributed crying and laughing to the brainstem, but actually it is the supranuclear control of brainstem. So a better term than pseudobulbar is supranuclear bulbar palsy or corticobulbar palsy, something like that. Medical students love talking about pseudobulbar affect, but they have to realise that, that it just doesn't make anatomical sense. So I like having that little bit in there. Well, yeah, but Phil, I, I, I was being very, very careful that we didn't mention the, uh, the wrong names for this condition. And I, and I think uh, pathological laughter and crying is actually a more helpful label because it sort of summarizes the whole thing. So, so we, we want to encourage everyone to, to, to forget all the other stuff and just use okay, those. Okay, so forget, forget I said that, but it's an interesting bit of the article just to, for its history. It's 150 years old, remember, pseudobulba, but that's the last time you'll hear it on an editor's podcast. And I, I'm sure our listeners will have no trouble forgetting what we've said, so that should all be fine. <laughs> Lovely. Okay, well, here's another one to remember now, and this is the uh, condition of spontaneous spinal cord infarction. So this is by Anthony Pereira's group in St George's in London, and uh, it sort of allies closely with the rehabilitation of stroke that we were talking about just now. So, Garrett, I think you've had a, a look at this paper. So this is a very nice summary of what's a sort of slightly emerging literature. I mean, part of the difficulty is in making the diagnosis. And uh, they discuss uh, this in terms of being the, the Cinderella subtype of stroke. And uh, they mention um, that it's been brought to public attention because uh, one of our many gold medal winning oarsmen um, had a spinal stroke. However, there are lots of reasons why it's hard to make a diagnosis. First of all, Unlike most strokes, it doesn't come on suddenly. It, it often it builds up to its peak within about 12 hours. So you're dealing with a different kind of process. And they discuss the anatomy behind those things. Uh, the imaging is very hard. Even good quality MR can be difficult. They've got some nice illustrations. They highlight the kind of sequences that give you the best chance of being able to see it. But very often, you're having to make a diagnosis on a clinical syndrome, which typically is anterior spinal, but obviously it doesn't necessarily. It can be hemicord or even posterior cord. Typically, we're all familiar with the, the idea of it being related to the arteria of Adamkowitz in the mid-thoracic region. Um, but the second most common site is actually in the cervical cord, and they give some nice illustrations in relation to that. And on top of the, 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 um, the difficulty in making the diagnosis, from a clinical and radiological perspective, you have a slightly wider range of uh, pathophysiological mechanisms that can cause it. The dominant pathology is atheroma and atherosclerotic risk factors and so on that we'll all be familiar with. But um, you've also got the notion that you can have um, fibrocartilaginous embolism from adjacent discs that we've discussed on a previous podcast. And I think all of those things make it quite tricky. I, I think... Improved radiology, the idea of being able to see infarcts in adjacent vertebrae. And there are a variety of different things which I think are going to make it relatively easier to be certain about. A greater confidence in earlier image, uh, use of spinal fluid analysis can exclude more inflammatory problems. So I think we're going to be more confident about making the diagnosis. 
And obviously part of the problem with having difficult diagnosis is that actually it's quite hard to get decent advice about what to do about it. The trial data is very weak compared to other strokes. Um, they do talk about the idea of perhaps using thrombolysis in the appropriate kind of circumstances. Um, uh, but predominantly, it's, it's unfortunately uh, presenting in a time window which doesn't make that very feasible. Yeah, because I think in a way, it's like the converse of uh, the stroke rehabilitation, where there isn't much evidence about the actual management of the acute stroke. Uh, sometimes maybe we should be elevating the blood pressure to try to improve the circulation. Maybe we should be giving thrombolysis and antiplatelet agents, perhaps no place for corticosteroids. You know, whereas the evidence for rehabilitation comes from the spinal injuries literature, where it's very, very strong. And I think if they are managed along those lines, then that probably is going to be the safest thing early rehabilitation of, of spinal stroke a lot along those lines and uh, a strong hint really that this condition is underdiagnosed and often labeled as uh, demyelinating or something like that um, particularly as the the onset can be over a few hours uh, incidentally quite painful it seems very often surprisingly perhaps for a, a stroke and uh, as you mentioned, the the uh, fibrocartilous um, embolism story, which might explain quite a lot more of these strokes than than maybe uh, is commonly accepted. And and I think that that they also often will do slightly better than you expect. Obviously, people with you know, quite dramatic spinal syndromes can improve uh, rather more than perhaps for other uh, explanations. So the. Next one is a new departure, really, isn't it? This this is uh, diabetes mellitus, and this is in the correct journal. It's in practical neurology, and it's what neurologists need to understand outside their specialty. And this is written by Jeff Stevens uh, and colleagues in Swansea um, in South Wales. And we invited Jeff to write this, not least because he is a true expert on the practical delivery of diabetes care, but because we feel that neurologists need to know about a condition that is so common and so impactful on their practice. I say common, we hear that by 2030, 10% of us will have diabetes. And uh, this is a literally a growing condition. So what this um, uh, review, a bit like a sort of bare essentials paper, really, uh, takes us through the different types of diabetes, uh, which uh, we know about. But essential for neurologists, we need to know about the complications because these may well come our way. And because it's so common, we all need to be taking part in the uh, diagnosis of diabetes and the prevention of these um, complications. So microvascular complications are definitely associated with hyperglycemia and are therefore preventable. And we see them in the, the fundi, but of course, the perhaps the main damage goes to the kidneys. And so just spotting these and uh, identifying people at risk is really important. The other thing that this covers quite nicely is the newer treatments that we do need to be familiar with, even though we will not be the ones necessarily changing the regimens. We need to know about the new ways of delivering insulin, this continuous subcutaneous insulin infusion. 20% of those who receive insulin are using these things, including, incidentally, Theresa May, who uh, has talked about using her CSII. And also the ways of monitoring these are automated. So we, there is a continuous glucose monitoring, which monitors from the interstitial space rather as a 
sort of surrogate for capillary blood sugar. And these two can be linked by Bluetooth on your phone so you can uh, measure the glucose and therefore deliver the rapidly acting insulin via the uh, continuous pump. So we need to know about those. And um, I mean, I I think this is just the sort of paper we need. It really is a a departure from what we would normally hear about. But um, all neurologists, like all physicians, like all doctors really, need to know about diabetes. And this is a, a good primer, a good introduction to modern management of diabetes. And I think that you, that's the point. This is an update. Uh, we're not expecting people to suddenly become diabetic experts, but at least the, the landscape and the context of diabetic management is laid out before them and the, the kind of decisions that our colleagues will be making in terms of uh, how to manage those patients. So I think we come to just one final paper because uh, it's been a full issue and we've we, uh, discussed quite a number of things. And this is, in fact, another paper from Neil Anderson's group um, discussing acute combined degeneration of the spinal cord following a recreational uh, nitrous oxide binge. And they've they've got two dramatic illustrations. They've got imaging of the spinal cord in the cervical region showing uh, the posterior column uh, loss, which obviously has produced this debilitating myelopathy. But they've also ordered the amount of nitrous oxide that the person who, the, the patient that they describe had taken, and they show it to you, and there it is. And and I think this is one of those interesting things where the general neurologist needs to know about it. If you weren't aware of it, you might think this patient might have had a spinal stroke, for example. We were discussing about the diagnostic difficulties. But actually, this is one of those things where Everyone needs to know about this. This is moving into a a public health type of situation. Um, They quote a couple of studies where up to 30% of students have taken this and significant number have taken it on a regular basis. And the the patient they describe has very significant disability for quite a long time, all of which was avoidable. And clearly, if everyone knows about this, uh, hopefully they can then make informed and sensible decisions about how to yes, avoid it. Yes, and not just avoidable, but voluntarily administered. And uh, it's important enough to feature on our cover this time, I think. So um, it rounds off the issue very well with uh, an, an important preventable condition of prevention seeming to be an important theme in this time's issue. So we publish regular podcasts about the best content. Amy Ross Russell will be talking to Jeremy Reese about radiation and the nervous system. Please plug into these podcasts regularly and tell your friends about them. Uh, Thank you very much until next time and have a very happy Christmas enjoying your paper issue or the electronic issue of Practical Neurology. And a happy Christmas from me.